Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. Today's guest is Dr. Katherine Sanderson. And let me tell you, she's got quite the bio. So she received a bachelor's degree in psychology with a specialization in health and development from Stanford. She has both a master's degree and doctorate degree in psychology from Princeton. Her research has received grant funding from the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Health. She's published all kinds of journal articles and chapters in books that have been used in college and middle school and high school. And she even wrote the Introduction to Psychology course for the Great Courses online courses. In 2012, she was named one of the country's top 300 professors by the Princeton Review. She's also written several books about how mindset influences happiness and health and even how long we live. And this includes her recent book that we're talking about today called The Positive Shift. Lastly, she writes a weekly blog for psychology today called Norms Matter. So she has a lot to offer This book was packed with all kinds of interesting studies and information, so I can't wait for this conversation. Catherine, it's so nice to have you here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for this invitation to talk. Absolutely. So I I wanted to start off because I think it might give some of my listeners kind of a sense of okayness if you share, because I I, something you wrote early on in your book is that despite writing a book that has a large focus on happiness, you don't necessarily consider yourself to be in the disposed to happiness camp. (laughs) So tell us about that and how that kind of contributed to you wanting to write this book. Yeah. So thanks for that question. I do think that in some ways that's the most important question because many people have the belief that, oh, here's an author, you know, talking about happiness. Surely, you know, she's one of the, as I describe kittens and rainbows people, but I start my book with a story that happened to me about five or six years ago. I was giving a talk on the science of happiness at a big financial services conference in which people, you know, could go to see different speakers and series of breakout sessions. And a woman came to my talk on the science of happiness. And at the end, she came up to me and said, you know, you were great. I loved you. And then she paused and said, and I'm so glad I came because I almost skipped your session because I just figured that I would hate you. (laughs) And I said, well, you know, thank you for that unusual compliment. Um, that's why you assume that you would hate me. And she said, I just assumed that anyone who talked about the science of happiness would be all about kittens and rainbows. And you'd just be really irritating. And by the end of the session, I'd want to strangle you. And I actually start my book with that story because I really do think it's an important point that there are people who go through the world and just can always find that magical silver lining. And, and if you're one of those people, congratulations, But I'm not one of those people. And I actually think that if I was one of those people, I couldn't have written the book because it would just be like, yeah, just look at the world as it is. Because if you're one of those people, you don't need strategies for finding happiness. And so I wrote the book because I'm somebody who frankly struggles to feel happy. I come from a pretty long line of of family members, close genetic relatives who've struggled with bipolar disorder, with depression. And I've spent a chunk of my life feeling anxious, feeling depressed. And so what I loved about writing this book 
was it was really sort of a reminder to me about what the science says that we can all do, even if we're not sort of naturally predisposed to be happy, uh, to do things to increase our own psychological well-being. Well, thank you for being vulnerable with that, because I think that's just an invitation for people to really recognize, especially coming from your background and all your credentials, that you can change that, right? Yeah. Now, I want to be honest. I think for some people, it's easier than other people. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a brother, a biologically related brother who has like a super fast metabolism and he can eat whatever he wants and he never gains any weight. And that is not me. (laughs) You know, that for me, in order to, you know, stay a healthy weight, I have to make a conscious effort to exercise and, and to, you know, watch my diet and so on. And so what I think about the science of happiness is that for some people it's easy. And for other people, it takes effort. And for me, it takes effort. But yes, when I make a decision to devote time and energy and effort to finding happiness, I'm good at it. But it doesn't happen naturally or easily. I do have to exert effort. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for making that distinguishment. And actually dovetails perfectly into something else that's kind of covered in the beginning of the book. You explain the power of growth mindset. And this is something that I think about because it's actually a value that I've been trying to figure out how to pass down to my children even. (laughs) Good, good. (laughs) So let's start there. What is growth mindset compared to fixed mindset? So many of us, and, and I frankly think, you know, sort of society in general focuses on what psychologists call a fixed mindset. And the fixed mindset is basically the idea that your traits uh, are fixed. They're stable. They don't change. So you're good at math or you're not, you know, you're optimistic or you're not, you're musical or you're not, you're extroverted or you're not. Basically there are these fixed traits and that is just how you are. And what I hope that people reading my book and sort of learning more about this concept of mindset will understand is that instead we all can and should adopt a growth mindset. And a growth mindset idea is that you can change. You can change your level of empathy uh, emotional intelligence, uh, positivity, you know, happiness, and so on by exerting effort. And if we adopt this growth mindset, then really there is this power of change and the potential for growth as long as we are willing to exert effort. But that effort is really important. Okay. So help me understand, because this was something I was getting my head around, because one of the things that came up kind of tangentially to this section a specific example in the book, it was about why labeling even a child as smart could backfire when it comes to fixed mindset. And I, I, it's like, God, I had to get my head around that. So tell me more. Love, love, love that question. Because I do think it's a little bit counterintuitive, which is why, you know, you're talking about getting your own mindset around it. And I want to be honest, this is not my work. This is from Carol Dweck, a, um, a famous professor at Stanford. But what I'm describing in this first chapter is really her work. And the idea is that we think as parents, and I'm the mom of three, um, we think that as parents telling your kid you're smart, that's a good thing. You're telling them like you're smart, you know, you're capable. But here's the challenge. If you tell your child you're you're smart, which is basically a fixed mindset, you know, you are smart, that is consistent and, and permanent, et cetera, and the child doesn't do well on something. So they take a math test and they get a C or whatever. All of a sudden, they have this doubt. <gasps> People think I'm smart, but I'm not. I just got this C. And then all of a sudden, it's actually very, very threatening because you've given them this label of you are smart. This is a fixed and stable identity. And gosh, if my mom or my teacher or my friend or my coach or whatever realizes that I'm not actually this thing that they thought, 
they're going to be really disappointed because again, if smart is a fixed mindset, then if it's wrong, so is dumb or so is unathletic or unmusical or unempathetic or whatever. And that actually leads kids to exert less effort because they, if they exert less effort and they don't do well, then they have an excuse. Oh, well, you know, I didn't try. That's why I didn't do well. Um, it can also lead kids to feel worried about trying to live up to this fixed idea instead of focusing on devoting effort and attention. And so really focusing on the potential for growth and the importance of exerting effort gives kids something that they can control. And it it gives kids a reason to keep trying. And frankly, it gives them more positive hope for the future if things on a particular test, exam, game, et cetera, don't go well. So even if we're not a parent, we are, most of us are an aunt or an uncle or a caregiver somewhere across the board. What is a, a more constructive way to compliment? I see that you tried so hard on that project. I am really impressed with how well you focused on that work. I could see you exerting your energy and effort and focus throughout that game. You know, I am so proud of how consistently you focused on and how much you tried in that experience. It also, all of those examples focus on the effort. They don't focus on the outcome. You can focus very, very well on a test and have it go poorly. You can try your hardest in a game and not win. But all of those are about what you are emphasizing and what you are praising is their effort, their diligence, their persistence, not just the outcome. All right. That really gelled for me right there. That's exactly because I I noticed right away you weren't talking about outcomes. So that's really helpful. Okay. So how can we be sure that we are nurturing our growth mindset? Like what's a litmus test for for where we're at now and, and how we can do a better job? Yeah, really love that question. So one of the keys really is focusing on this concept of effort. I think so often, and you know, I'm also a college professor, I think so often students get this message that if I'm good at something, it should come easily. So I'm good at writing, I should just be able to open the computer and write a perfect paper. You know, if I'm good at, at you know, the piano, I should be able to just like sit down and get it. And the reality is for most of us, things take effort. They take attention. So you and I uh, talked actually before the, the start of this recording about how you had thoroughly and thoughtfully read my book and, and crafted different questions. And that's an example. It wasn't just like you you know opened up this Zoom link and started interviewing me. You tried, you exerted effort. I wrote this book and I'm telling you, there were many times in which I was like, is this a book? Maybe it's a pamphlet. Maybe it's a uh, you know magazine article. Maybe it's nothing. And it was not that I opened up my document and, and just wrote it. Um, and many times I would send something to my editor. My editor would be like, this doesn't make any sense at all. And, and again, having the idea that when you work on something, what's really important is not how quickly you did it, how easily you did it. What's really important is how much effort you spent in terms of making it better and exerting that continual effort. And so that's something that I think we all need to be mindful of, that there are lots of things that don't come easily. And we can look at the final outcome of, oh, you know, I wrote this book. What you don't recognize is that this book was a very much of a work in progress and it was horrible in many, many different stages of it. And you're only seeing the final outcome. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are afraid to do anything they don't know how to do 
because of, of failure, they d- can't control, you know, that would be my example of, of that mindset, the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, absolutely. And it's funny because when I'm giving my students papers, you know, I comment, you know, pretty extensively on their papers, you know, could be better, could be better. And one of them at some point said, sometimes it's kind of discouraging because you're, you know, you're giving me all these things. And, you know, I thought I was a good writer and I'm like, I'm going to open up the document that my editor just sent me. And like, I have a PhD (laughs) and like, let me tell you like how many comments you can't even see like my words because she's scribbled so much. And, and so again, I think for all of us thinking about this as a process that, you know, we can get better at everything. And it really is about thinking about where we can go, not what we've done, but where we can go. Okay. So Another part of the mindset, which is, I think you're, you're in a unique place because you do teach in a college setting. Something that stood out to me is mindset when it comes to stress and our ability to reframe situations like test taking or speaking in a fr- in front of a crowd. So tell us about shifting that a little bit. Yeah, that's, you know, I think some of the most interesting and exciting work that we very much have a belief in our society that stress is bad, right? Stress is debilitating. It's bad for your health. You know, you should avoid it, et cetera. And instead, what I want people to do is to reframe the idea of stress, that when you are stressed, you're feeling energized, you're feeling excited, you know, you're feeling alive because you're being pushed to do new things that you're not particularly good at. And, and reframing how we think about stress has actually been shown in empirical research to lead to lower levels of anxiety and depression and also better work performance. So we think about stress as being such a negative, but we can in fact adopt a new, more positive mindset about stress and experience psychological benefits and professional benefits. So to me, this is one of the most important and sort of tangible benefits from work on psychology that we can all use. Yeah. And in my own practice, I, you know, sometimes if I'm feeling a little anxious about something big, sometimes I'll try to reframe it in my mind and just be like, oh, I'm feeling really excited about this. And kind of just try to, that's my <laughs> that's perfect example. You know, that's a perfect example. And it's frankly what high level athletes do, right? It's what, it's like what Olympic athletes do instead of being like, oh, I'm really nervous. They're like, I'm really energized, right? I'm going to take this excitement and I'm going to go out and, you know, skate or swim or run or, you know, whatever my best. Um, it's really a technique that's adopted from sports psychology initially. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I, one of the examples in the book that stood out for me, and maybe you can speak to a little bit was when, you know, there was an, I, in college, I struggled. I, I was not a, a test taker. I wish I had your book then. <laughs> I really, as do I, as do I, <laughs> but I remember reading about this. There was like a change of what they were calling test taking day. And there was balloons and streamers and treats and all this stuff. So tell us about how that shifted things super smart um, example. And that actually came from a professor, I think at a school in Texas. And what he did was he reframed instead of being like, this is exam day. This is celebration day. We are going to celebrate today by demonstrating how much we have learned and mastered in the course. And so instead of it being like, oh, this is this, you know, make it or break it, you know, are you going to pass or fail or get an A or whatever? It was really an opportunity to celebrate and to share what you've learned. And it was, it did involve balloons and streamers and again, this sort of celebratory mindset framing. And so that's an example, again, of reframing what for many, many students is a very stressful experience, celebration. Well, I have to admit, I because I'm always, whenever I am interviewing an author, I want to try it on for size. And so 
I was just happened to be while I was reading this, we were reevaluating our family chores list. (laughs) And, you know, some there's a negative connotation, even with the word chore of thinking that maybe it's like unpleasant, but necessary. So I was like, you know what, we're going to make this our house love list. And And so I'm like, my, of course I got eye rolls from my kids, but we'll, I'll, I'll keep you posted, but it kind of felt better to have it be like, Hey, how can we love on our house today versus like do your chores? So that is a perfect example. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. I'll report back. (laughs) All right. So I pulled listeners and I know they're super interested and I want to make sure we carve out a big portion of our conversation about how mindset impacts longevity. And there's so much interesting things in the book about that. So let's just start with broad strokes. How does mindset impact longevity? So what we know very, very clearly is that the mindset that you adopt about aging exerts a tremendous impact on how you feel about aging and in fact, even how long you live. Before I give you the sort of exciting you know, punchline of this, I also want to be very clear that one of the reasons why I think this research is so important is that there are tremendous cultural differences in terms of how we think about aging. So in the United States and in many Western cultures, aging is you lose attractiveness and you develop dementia and, you know, you become feeble and absent-minded and, you know, less attractive and all these different things. And in many Eastern cultures and many Asian cultures, there's a real sense of like with aging comes wisdom. (laughs) And, you know, these are people that we should really look to as experience. And so what I like to, to point out in terms of that is that that is actually a perfect illustration of how mindset about aging is not a function of biological change with age. The mindset that we have about aging is very much about cultural norms. But let me tell you what I think is the most interesting and exciting finding. And this was a a very, very large scale survey in which they had adults ages 15 and older come in and they completed a standard inventory of what are your beliefs about aging. So they gave people questions like, you know, as I get older, things keep getting worse. Or as you get older, you get less useful. And they just basically measured how much people agreed with those. Did did you say like, yeah, that's pretty much how I feel. Or were you like, nah, that's, that's not really how I I feel. I mean, I disagree with that. So they asked these adults. And again, these are people ages 15 older to rate their agreement with these stereotypes. And then they kept looking at these people every year. So they kept going back to the same people year after year after year. And here's what they found. After 23 years, so again, they followed these people for 23 years. They found that people who had positive stereotypes about aging on average lived seven and a half years longer than did people who had negative stereotypes about aging. And this study took into account other factors that predict longevity, like, you know, what was your BMI and what was your blood pressure and did you smoke and things like that. So what this study profoundly illustrates is that having positive expectations about aging when you are in midlife, you know, around 50 leads people on average to live seven and a half years longer. And wouldn't we all like to get an extra seven and a half years of life? That's incredible. I mean, it is, isn't it? Right. It just kind of, it really, when you think about too, I think it's so culturally pervasive that we assume that our mind's going to leave us. And tell us a little bit, one of the things I'm remembering as you're talking is even when people started labeling senior moments 
it almost became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I know you even shared a personal travel story. I, you, you share what you want, but tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I will share a personal travel story because I think it actually really epitomizes it. So I live in Massachusetts and a few years ago, I was scheduled to give a talk in New Jersey, about four hours from my house. I had a really busy day, you know, teaching and meetings and so on. I came home, packed my suitcase, had dinner with my family. And then finally at 9 p.m., a little bit too late, I got in the car to drive to New Jersey to give my talk. And again, since I was leaving at 9 p.m. and it was a four hours drive, I was just going to go crash at the hotel. So I wore to do the drive a ratty T-shirt and like running shoes and sweatpants. So at 11 p.m., I'm on the Tappan Zee Bridge for people who are in the Northeast. Uh, I get a call from my husband and my husband says, do you know that your suitcase is on the bed? And I was like, no, no, I did not know that. (laughs) Call and figure out what is open in Princeton before 9 a.m. when I have to give this talk. And he's like, yeah, get right on that. And he calls back in like 10 minutes and he goes, well, there is something. And it is um, Walmart. So not even Target, but Walmart, you know, is open at 6 a.m. or something. So I go to my hotel, check in, I get a wake up call for six. I sleep in my ready, you know, t-shirt and sweatpants. I drive myself to Walmart at 6 a.m. in my ready t-shirt and sweatpants. And I buy an outfit from the Miley Cyrus collection (laughs) and which I use to deliver my talk. And at lunch that day, I confessed to people sitting at my table, like what had happened. And everybody just thought it was hysterical, you know, absent-minded professor, like, you know, can't remember her suitcase or whatever. But, but here's the reality. When it happened, I was like 45 years old. If I had been 60 or 70, what would everybody have said? Senior moment, right? A hundred percent people would have been like senior moment. And, and here's the reality. When you start thinking, this is a senior moment. Um, Or when you give adults an article to read about senior moments or memory decay with age, it actually leads to impairment on memory tests. And so what we know is that triggering people, reminding people, telling people about the so-called memory decay that happens with age, which is actually not very common at all and, and does not really happen for most adults, um, certainly not you know, at, with any prevalence until you know, well into your 80s or beyond. But as soon as you start thinking, well, you know, I'm getting older, memory you know, must be fading, it actually leads memory to fade. And so, so I really don't like the term senior moments. And, and I think we should all focus on adopting this, you know, Eastern focus on with age comes wisdom and experience. I definitely appreciate that. I have a grandmother who is 94, who's sharp as a tack. She just read something that I wrote that was 25 pages and wrote back, you know, and it's, and I think it's a, it's a choice. And I just love that idea of having more reverence for, for that. What other ways do negative stereotypes about aging impact outcomes? So what we know very consistently, and we know this broadly in the literature and psychology, frankly, is that stereotypes in and of themselves can have lots of different effects. And so what we know is broadly speaking, having negative stereotypes about aging is associated not only with memory, it actually just priming people with negative stereotypes about aging leads people to walk slower down a hallway. So it seems to impair, you know, sort of physical speed or strength. Now, those are probably short-term effects, but they're a reminder of how just pulling up negative stereotypes about aging can actually influence physical well-being. Another study also found that people who have negative stereotypes about aging are more likely to experience cardiovascular problems. So things like strokes, you know, heart attacks, congestive heart failure. So basically what we know is that negative stereotypes about aging influence our health, 
They influence our memory. They influence our physical speed and strength. And again, as we noted earlier, they influence how long we live. So lots. Yeah. So I, I'm really glad you, you brought up and opened because I think that cultural piece is, is fascinating because it, it, it is so kind of universal in the United States, even the images we see of, of people. So what do we know about regions around the world where centenarians are concentrated and what are kind of the correlations there? So what research that has examined, you know, where we see centenarians uh, overwhelmingly reveals sort of some key findings. And some of these are might be, you know, what you would expect. They tend to be cultures in which people are eating pretty healthy. So, you know, the, the you know, eating the olive oil and grains and, you know, fruits and vegetables and, you know, things like that. We see that. We also see cultures in which people are spending a lot of time outside. So certain parts of Greece, certain parts of um, Italy, certain parts of Japan, certain parts of California, in which people are really spending a lot of time in nature. But the other thing which I think is particularly important is they also tend to be cultures in which we continue to think about people as having meaning and purpose and engagement in their lives, even with age, um, and having really strong relationships with extended family, the idea of, you know, it takes a village. And so in many cultures in which we see lots of people living into their 90s and beyond, we really do see people maintaining a sense of purpose and value, um, forming strong relationships with their friends, their family members, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, their neighbors, and really being part of a community. And I think that is really profoundly important for us to think about, particularly in the United States, in which we often see, you know, older adults being sent to, you know, a nursing home or assisted living, you know, or other places in which they really don't have that opportunity to have the same sort of community integration and meaning and purpose in their lives. Okay. Yeah. That I just, this is so interesting. We're coming up on time. I have a couple more questions on one other topic, but is there anything else about the whole aging and mindset that I didn't get a chance to to tap on that you wanted to mention? No, I mean, I think the key point is that we can change it, right? Yes. <laughs> that's, that's, let's just stick with that. We can change it. Yes. And I, I did want to mention, cause an anecdote that stood out in my, in my reading was a woman who, and it's just, it was really interesting to me, or I don't know if ironic is the right word, but that she was, she worked for AARP and she had an injury or, or something. And she, she felt frustrated, which I've seen and experienced with people who've been aging in my, cause she was on a cane for a while and she felt like people were treating her like a victim and not it like almost like an in, invalid person. And here she's, she's like, no. So in the story, she decorates her cane and makes it feel super festive. And, and then people were seeing her as this creative person and totally changed the way they engaged with her or even saw her. So how do you interpret that? So I love that example because really what she's doing is she's changing people's mindset about the cane, right? The cane is not a, Ooh, you are weak and you can't walk and you need assistance because you are old, you know, or you are injured. The cane is, Oh, this is fun. And this is celebration. And this is kind of a kooky lady, you know, sort of a thing. So what she's doing is she's changing the mindset that people see her with. And as I describe in the book, and as you just so eloquently described, it really changed how people reacted to her. And again, led to a positive self-fulfilling prophecy instead of a sort of spiral of doom and despair, right? Absolutely. Okay. I'm glad we got to talk about that because I enjoyed that anecdote. Let's move on another totally different and 
also very compelling section of the book that really spoke to me is this whole idea, especially in these social media times we live in, you talk about why comparison really is the thief of joy. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, that to me is one of the most important findings. And I say that as the, as the mom of teenagers slash young adults, and of course, a college professor who works with many of them. I often say to my, my children, college students and, and biological children, I am lucky that I'm old enough that when I was in high school, I never had to see photos of parties I wasn't invited to. And to me, that is kind of the essence of the comparison is the, is the thief of joy, that many people feel perfectly fine with their own lives until they go on social media. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, these people are taking a fabulous vacation and, and these people have a nicer house and their kid seems to be a lot more successful, you know, and so on. And people start doing this comparison and we can compare about anything. We can compare, you know, this person seems prettier or thinner than I am. This person seems wealthier than I am. You know, this person seems more successful than I am and so on. And that kind of comparison really is the thief of joy. Mm-hmm. So I know that we can be intentional about using social media and mindful too about how it makes us feel. You know, that's always when people say, "What? Do, what are you? How do you handle social media?" Because it's a necessity for a lot of us now, and and when and how we work. But how can we how can we kind of move past that what else can we do to make sure that we're not getting ourselves stuck in that comparison mode is how can we how can we be proactive so i'm going to say three quick things one if you know that following somebody on social media makes you feel bad stop following that person i mean so one i think there are people that are like that person is really a trigger for me just stop following that person so i think that's one two i think actually having the awareness that hey they're not posting their actual life, that social media is not an autobiographical rendition of their life, that you know they are posting things that, that are um, intentional. And, and having that awareness so that we're kind of a more skeptical or critical consumer of social media is really important. Yeah, that looks good, but you know what? I bet that's not the whole story. Three, I also think that it's really important for each of us to try to take steps to be authentic on social media. And I'll tell one brief story that feels particularly timely these days. My mom died just about 18 years ago now. And for many years, being on social media on Mother's Day was just heartbreaking to me because I would see all these people, you know, here I am at brunch with my mom, best mom ever. And I would just feel so sad and missing my mom so much. And it was really horrible. And then I started doing something different. On Mother's Day, I would post a picture of me and my mom and I would say, today is really hard for me because I am really sad and I am really missing my mom today. And so I would just put out there that I was sad. And then I would tag all the different people who I knew had also lost their own moms, which in reality, of course, every year, you know, was more people. And doing that again on social media led to two really great things. One, so many people reached out and said, I'm thinking about your mom, or let me tell you a story about your mom. And so people would, you know, share things that made me feel close to my mom, you know, hearing things about her. But the other thing is that so many people reached out to me who'd also lost their moms and said, thank you. Thank you for recognizing that today is hard for me too. And thank you for remembering that. And so it was really an example of how using social media, not to promote how great or wonderful my life was, but to really you know, describe in an authentic way that I was not feeling good. And and that actually led me to feel closer to my mom and to also lots of other people who were in the same kind of sad boat, you know, on, on what was a hard day. So again, we control how we use social media and we can use social media in ways that make us feel better or ways that make it us feel worse. It's up to us. 
I can't agree more. And I think that you sharing in a more authentic, vulnerable way gives a permission slip for other people to feel seen and normal that they're having that similar emotion. But also, I think it will influence more people to to share that type of that type of thing too. a little bit of like, (laughs) a little bit of the fun, a little bit of the real. So that's, that's hopeful for me. Thank you. One other thing that stood out in this section that I'd never heard explained quite exactly in this way was this whole idea of the wealthy neighborhood paradox when it comes out to comparison. Can you explain that to us? Yeah. I mean, and that this is really fascinating research. A lot of it's been being done by economists, but what this research has shown is that people who live based on zip code in like wealthier zip codes actually feel less happy than people who live in less wealthy zip codes. And, and that's a really interesting finding because you might think, well, gosh, you know, if you're, if you live in a wealthy neighborhood, you're probably wealthy and surely you should then be happier because you're wealthy. And, and what the research actually shows is that when you live in a wealthy neighborhood, there's all of a sudden this like really, really intense comparison because all the other people around you are also really wealthy. And that in fact, doesn't make you feel better because what you're doing is you're comparing. They have a nicer car. They have a nicer house. They have a gardener. They have a second house, you know, whatever it is. And so it really just kind of changes your nature of your comparison and you feel less good as a result. And so the wealthy neighborhood paradox is sort of a perfect illustration of comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not going to spend as much time on social media comparing if we really want to ensure kind of our bridge to longevity and kind of shift our focus on things that do make us happy. If I was a college student and I was like, well, gosh, you've written about all this. What should I do? I'm leaving. I don't know. What should I do to what are the biggest factors in me inviting more happiness into my life? So, and I want to start by saying it's actually not one size fits all. And I say that because I think it's really important for people to recognize that what makes you happy may not make your neighbor happy or your friend happy or your sister happy or your child happy or whatever. So sometimes I'll give, you know, a talk on happiness or someone will read my book and they'll say, well, I don't like to meditate. And I'm like, then don't meditate. You know, so, so happiness is not one size fits all. That being said, I'm going to give you three because there are three that the empirical research is just super strong in. And so many of these work for people. One, spending time in nature, getting outside. And it can be physically getting outside. It can be, you know, hiking or, you know, camping or going to a beach, but it can be walking through a park in the middle of an urban setting. It can be looking at nature through a window. It can be having indoor plants. It can be listening to sounds of, you know, the rain or birds chirping or whatever, you know, oceans crashing. Nature is consistently associated with better happiness, lower blood pressure, you know, better sense of well-being. Two, giving. And what I love about this one is anything counts. Volunteering, donating to charity, donating blood. Research consistently shows across every different measure that we've studied that giving makes people feel good. There's fascinating research looking at fMRI data, so patterns of brain activation, showing that just thinking about giving a gift to a friend activates a part of the brain that processes rewarding experiences the exact same part of the brain that is activated when you eat chocolate. So again, giving anything, again, time, money, random acts of kindness, any of that, super good. Three, relationships. Relationships are the single best predictor of our happiness. And the key about relationships is it doesn't matter the label on the relationship. It can be with a friend, a romantic partner, a family member, a colleague, a neighbor. It doesn't matter who the relationship is with. What matters 
is that it's high in quality, that you can be intimate and vulnerable and your real self. And that's what really leads to consistent happiness. It's not about having a giant social network. It's choosing basically quality over quantity and good relationships, the single best predictor of our happiness. Thank you. I know that'll inspire people to kind of retune and refocus. So I, I really appreciate that. We're heading up against time, but I want to make sure to end. It seems only appropriate to end on a happy note. So can you share us real quickly what the latest statistics are about how happiness actually is contagious? Because maybe this will also encourage people to get to know their neighbor better. <laughs> no, well, I'll tell you right now, one of the reasons in which I was so I'm happy to have this conversation with you is that we all benefit from more happiness in the world. That when you spend time with people who are happy, it elevates your own happiness. And so we all want to live in a world with more happy people because in fact, happiness is contagious. And so increasing our own happiness helps increase the happiness of those around us. And it's really this sort of positive ripple effect. So I'm hoping that our conversation today is contributing in some small way to increasing happiness overall in the world. Absolutely. All right. I always end my conversations with the same question. And that's what's one question women should be asking themselves more. Women should be, I love that question. Women should be asking themselves, what can I do for me? That lots of work um, in, in sociology, uh, it's called cognitive labor. <laughs> lots of work has shown that women tend to take on huge amounts of cognitive labor. So they are basically thinking about how they can do things for other people, you know, their, their spouses, their friends, their children, you know, and so on, their colleagues. So I like to have women focus on what can they do that is self-care for them. I like that. I like that a lot. All right. This was a wonderful conversation. I know people are going to be wanting to follow you. So where can we find you? So I am on um, Instagram at Sanderson speaking, and I'm on Twitter at Sanderson speaks. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation to talk. It's made me happy. Oh, it's made me happy too. (laughs) Have a great day. (laughs) Take care. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at at WhitneyWoman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.